Hello and welcome back to Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. Christina Safran is the co-founder and CEO of Equip, a virtual program that delivers modern eating disorder treatment through family-based care that promises lasting recovery at home. Prior to Equip, Christina founded Project Heal, a leading grassroots eating disorder nonprofit dedicated to treatment access. Christina is an Ashoka Fellow, a Forbes 30 Under 30 social entrepreneur, and a Facebook Community Leadership Fellow, and graduated from Harvard College with a bachelor's degree in psychology in May 2014. It's so great to have you on with us this afternoon. Um, why don't we start at the beginning, and can you tell us a bit about what got you on this mission to raise awareness and improve access to eating disorder treatment. Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm so excited to be on with you. Yes, this mission has always been incredibly personal to me. I was diagnosed with anorexia when I was 10 years old and struggled throughout my adolescence, spending my entire freshman year of high school in and out of hospitals. After I got out of my last hospitalization and started to slip yet again, my parents fortunately found out about family-based treatment, which we now know is the leading and only evidence-based treatment for kids, adolescents, and young adults with eating disorders that really empowers the family to play an active role in the recovery process. And, you know, I can say more about how we believe family has really chosen family, but the idea is essentially that eating disorders are brain disorders. And as I like to say, for an illness that requires you to fight your brain many times a day, it's not only ineffective, but kind of mean to treat it as an individual illness. You really need people around you to help structure that home for pro-health behaviors. So it was the hardest year of my life, but it was undoubtedly the thing that got me better. I could not have done the work alone without the support of my family. And as I got better and I had actually had a good friend, uh, Leanna Rosenman, who I had met in treatment about a year prior, who really played a supportive role for me. She was further along in the recovery process and we really supported one another. We'd go out and get ice cream together and challenge foods and really push one another in our recoveries. And as our conversation sort of shifted from our own healing and recovery to kind of the broader systemic issues in the system around healing and recovery, it really kept coming back to this field is the most inequitable field in all of mental health care. It is so gross that 80% of the 30 million Americans with eating disorders don't have access to treatment. And so at 15, we took a lot of, I, I always talk about the fact that the temperament traits that make you vulnerable to an eating disorder, this type A perfectionism, the ability to hyper-focus on a goal and narrow out distractions, they're good temperament traits when you learn how to channel them in the right direction uh, instead of against yourself. And that's exactly what I did. So uh, Leanna and I started Project Heal uh, when we were 15 to raise money for people with eating disorders that couldn't afford treatment and really have grown up in this field and, and learned all about all of the different problems that lead to a lack of access. And, you know, frankly, what we, what I began to learn over the course of the next decade was, I mean, so many things, but interestingly, we started Project Heal in 2008, which was the same year that the Mental Health Parity Act was passed. And while it's a phenomenal law that at a high level says mental health has to be covered at the same rate as physical health, the unintended consequence was that private equity entered to the market and said, this is a hot growth industry. Let's pour a lot of money in. And 
uh, you started to see the rise of a number of residential facilities. And I started to see more and more people were applying to our scholarship program with access to residential care and no quality outpatient care. And it just made no sense to me. And I, you know, began to learn about the fact that there wasn't research to support this treatment that I was, you know, paying all this money for, um, began to see some of the revolving door of folks kind of cycling in and out of treatment because they had no good outpatient care uh, when they left treatment. And it always really bothered me. And a couple, about three years ago, uh, sat down with a number of, of payers. It was always interesting to me that I think the eating disorder field has had traditionally kind of vilified the payers as you know, these evil folks who aren't covering treatment. And it always just struck me that we needed to work with them if we wanted to solve this true access issue um, for all people. We needed to figure out some way to partner with them. And so put together a summit of a number of payer execs, a number of academics to really talk about how do we build a better model of outpatient care? And they essentially said, if you build it, we will come. Uh, and that was uh, three years ago, the starting journey of uh, building Equip. Maybe stepping back, can you kind of talk about what eating disorders are and maybe how it is different from like disordered eating? Yeah, it's a great question. So eating disorders are an umbrella term. It actually encompasses five different disorders within that umbrella. Um, we have avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, ARFID, that typically has an age of onset about six years old. And this is you can think of it as picky eating gone awry. Uh, it occurs in a couple of different ways. One is um, having very particular preferences, only eating, you know, maybe a handful of foods, having taste and texture issues. Another is having extremely low hunger cues. And another is having phobias around choking or vomiting or things associated with eating ends up resulting in a lot of the same malnutrition that we see in anorexia without some of the shape and weight and body image concerns. Importantly, um, it was only recognized by the DSM in the last edition of the DSM. And so there's a real lack of access to trained specialists in ARFID. A lot of people do not know how to treat it. Uh, the good news is that, you know, while we do see kids as young as six years old, they, they get better really quickly uh, there uh, with, with family-based treatment and with good evidence-based treatment. Anorexia tends to occur at the age, has an onset of 12 years old. And this is, you know, extreme obsession and preoccupation with food and body and not being able, you know, not taking in enough uh, calories and nutrition to sustain uh, a healthy weight for your body. Important, you know, asterisk on that, which is that eating disorders and anorexia too come in all shapes and sizes. And importantly, again, not until the last, uh, the last edition of the DSM did we recognize that the majority of people with eating disorders were falling into this eating disorder, not otherwise specified bucket. They had all of the symptoms of anorexia. They just didn't get to this, you know, less than 85% of ideal body weight characterization. We've just been, you know, really miss, missing and frankly stigmatizing these folks by calling them sort of a, having atypical anorexia. Anorexia can occur at all shapes and body sizes. And frankly, uh, many folks with what we considered atypical anorexia show up more extreme and more severe, both medically and psychologically, because they've been 
missed for so long and frankly praised for their illness in society for so long, which is a whole nother conversation uh, that we can get into. Um, and then bulimia and binge eating disorder really stem from that same preoccupation with food and weight and body all eating disorders stem from, you know, restriction and in bulimia and binge eating disorder, that restriction then leads to compensatory, in the case of bulimia, compensatory purging, over-exercising, using laxatives and diuretics, and or uh, in binge eating disorder, uh, there is no compensatory behavior. It's just those binges. But again, that leads from severe restriction of food intake. You asked about how does this differ from the disordered eating? And I think it's such a phenomenal question and one that we get a lot. And the reality is it's a hard line. We live in a society, unfortunately, that so normalizes disordered eating and a lot of eating disorder symptoms and behaviors are just culturally sanctioned, unfortunately. Um, and that really goes back to our societal sort of thin ideal and the obsession with the diet culture. Where I like to kind of draw the line, there are obviously clinical assessments that you can do, but taking a really simple approach of saying, on a scale of one to 10, uh, one being absolutely never, 10 being 24 seven, every time that you're awake, how often are you thinking about food? How often do you want to be thinking about food? Same thing with your body on a scale of one to 10. How often do you think about your body? How often do you want to be thinking about your body? It's that Delta that shows me how disordered you are and how much this is interfering with your life. And that's really when it starts to take over your life, interfere with you going out to dinner with friends, participating in social events, being able to focus and pay attention in school. That's really where it crosses the line from, you know, disordered eating to an eventual eating disorder. But the other thing I'll say is that that's a slippery slope. Eating disorders exacerbate incredibly quickly. They have the second highest mortality rate of all mental illnesses. And every person I've worked with of thousands and thousands and thousands of people always say to me, you know, I didn't realize I had crossed over that line until way after I had crossed over that line in hindsight. And so early intervention and early recognition is so incredibly important. We know that dieting is you know, the biggest single risk factor for eating disorders. And we also know that nobody should be dieting. Diets don't work. 97% of them fail. Uh, most people end up at a higher weight than they even started with because of the effects of weight cycling. Um, and so we're also really trying to fight this harmful diet culture that normalizes so much of eating disorders and you know makes people more at risk and also makes recovery a lot harder for all of us. I guess I was wondering if you could speak more about the relationship of eating disorders to other mental illnesses and then maybe um, how those physical aspects are intertwined with the recovery of them. Yeah, it's such a good question too. I think that we often say that eating disorders never occur in isolation. I think that's absolutely true that we never see just an eating disorder. These disorders are highly comorbid with anxiety disorders. I think about 60% of folks with an eating disorder have a comorbid anxiety disorder. Major depression is about 40%. OCD is about 25%. There's PTSD, substance use disorder, actually above the age of 18, 50% of folks with an eating disorder have a comorbid substance use disorder. So you cannot treat an, an eating disorder without treating the comorbidities simultaneously. You cannot get someone to full recovery without treating those comorbidities simultaneously. And that's absolutely what we do at Equip. The other thing that you brought up, which is really important, is the physical effects that happen when you have an eating disorder. 
we actually know that a lot of the symptoms of eating disorders are in fact symptoms of starvation. And this is true in all of those disorders that I've mentioned, because again, you can be in a starvation state at a, you know, tech, you know, quote unquote, normal, or even I hate this, you know, overweight body, but you can at any body shape and size, you can have starvation. We often cite this really interesting uh, study in, in the eating disorder field that you may know, the Minnesota male starvation experiment, where they essentially took, this is, you know, back in the fifties, uh, and they took 25 totally physically and psychologically healthy men. Uh, they were looking at the effects of uh, concentration camps and how to best refeed people uh, coming out of the war. And they essentially starved these guys to 25%, you know, less than their ideal body weights, like you could never do today with the IRBs, of, <laughs> IRBs of, of now, and found that these men started exhibiting a lot of the same symptoms and behaviors that we typically associate with eating disorders. So, you know, not only the anxiety, the depression, the compulsivity, the rigidity, uh, but things like cutting food into little pieces, hoarding food, obsessively reading cookbooks and thinking about meals, even having some like hallucinatory and delusional thoughts around food. And this is the simple act of starvation on men who are otherwise totally physically and psychologically not predisposed to this. So you think about taking someone who is already genetically predisposed to an eating disorder and then layering on the effects of malnutrition and starvation, um, you're creating this sort of perfect storm and cycle. And that's, you know, what's really important for people to understand about why family involvement and the focus on nutritional rehabilitation is so critical. The old sort of paradigm around eating disorder treatment was let's motivate you to want to eat, to want to like your body and then we'll feed you. And that just doesn't work, right? It's, it's kind of like trying to do therapy on someone when they're still drunk. You have to attack the behavioral aspects of the disorder to get folks back to full weight restoration, complete cessation of behaviors so that their brains are nourished and their brains can then do some of the, you know, harder work of recovery and working on those comorbidities and, you know, triggers and coping skills and all of that. You really can't do that work on a malnourished brain. We also know that a big part of eating disorders are not wanting to get better and not knowing how sick you are. And so that's a big reason why it's really pretty impossible to do this work alone. You really need people around you who can you know, help you when you don't want to help yourself. My last thing before we dive into, I guess, Project Heal and Equip, I was kind of thinking about how eating disorders are often siloed in the behavioral health field. I was wondering if you could maybe speak to that, but then also maybe in like even the startup world, how there are not many, I guess, companies focusing on eating disorders. Yeah, I think a couple of things. The eating disorder field has been really siloed, incredibly underfunded. And I think this really goes back to the misconceptions and stigmas about eating disorders. There is a horrible misconception that this is a white rich girl vanity issue. And we know that that is patently false. We know that these disorders are brain disorders. They have some of the strongest genetic and neurobiological underpinnings of any mental illness. And they don't have a look. Uh, they affect people equally across race, class, ethnicity. Up to a third of sufferers are men. The majority of people who suffer are not technically underweight. And we also know that as food insecurity in a community rises, eating disorders directly rise. But unfortunately, this stigma persists, leading to 
a lack of funding, a lack of you know research dollars in the field, and most people being missed, being not being diagnosed, and thus not getting access to treatment. I mean, if you fit the mold to a T, uh, you you are probably not going to get diagnosed until three years into their il- into your illness. If you don't fit that stereotypical mold, you almost have no shot. Um, and so that's a big thing that we're looking to do as well. But I think that's a big reason that they've been so sort of siloed is really really because of this misunderstanding around what they are. And yeah, when we went out to fundraise for this, I mean. One of the reasons that we did decide to go uh, the startup venture capital route is because of that lack of funding. Uh, so I tried to solve this problem and, you know, eating disorder nonprofits and eating disorder nonprofits raise less than $10 million a year collectively in the United States. When you look at something like even depression, it's hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And frankly, mental health raises less funding than other, like the American Cancer Association or breast cancer or whatever it is, raises, you know, into the, into the billions of dollars. So it's really hard to create that sort of transformational change that is needed on that lack of funding. And then similarly, research dollars, eating disorders are one of the lowest funded uh, by the NIMH, I think it's about $9 per affected individual as opposed to, you know, 200 uh, plus for like schizophrenia, autism with a similar prevalence. And so mm-hmm. there's such a such a lack of funding and innovation going on in those spaces. So my co-founder was at uh, UC San Diego's Eating Disorder Research and Treatment Program, widely regarded as the leading program uh, in, in the world. People fly from all over the world to get treatment there, which shows you how hard it is to find yeah. good evidence-based treatment. And so after really trying to solve this problem in nonprofit and academia for a decade plus each, we decided we needed to try a new approach to create the transformational change that we wanted to see. And yeah, there were a lot of people who were like, is this, you know, this is a niche issue. This is only something that affects like thin white women and really had to do a lot of education around. Yeah, you think that, but actually this is what eating disorders are. This is what they look like. This is what they don't look like. Uh, This is who's affected. And it was so interesting because in all of those meetings, we would have at least one person in the room and usually multiple people in the room sort of being like, oh my God, that's my niece. That's my granddaughter. That's my son. Um, And really coming to an understanding of, wow, this is not what I thought it was. And this is a lot more prevalent than I thought it was. I'm really proud we've brought in sort of the largest largest infusion of capital in the eating disorder field that it's ever seen uh, with Equip. And other startups are popping up in the eating disorder space because we've really, you know, proved a market and shown the world that this is not a niche issue. This affects 10% of people at some point in their lifetime. And again, it's the second deadliest mental illness. And yet with good treatment, full recovery is absolutely possible. Touched on this a little bit, but I'd love for you to describe a little bit more about, I guess, the differences between Project Heal and Equip and kind of, I guess, the differences between running a nonprofit versus a for-profit organization. <laughs> yeah, lots of lots of differences. Um, but at, at its core, they have the exact same mission, which is, you know, to ensure that every single person with an eating disorder has access to quality treatment. And so Project Heal, I, I started it just to raise money for people who couldn't afford treatment, you know, obviously expanded it very broadly. We had so much grassroots interest and support. We had people coming to us saying, how can I help? How can I help? And we'd say, give money. And they were like, we want to do more. So we actually opened 40 chapters across the country of sort of grassroots activists who 
you know, wanted to see a change in the eating disorder field. Uh, we actually started at Project Heal, the first evidence-based peer support program uh, in the country, which I often say, you know, sometimes things aren't evidence-based because no one's cared enough to study it. Uh, and so I think that's exactly what we did. We surveyed our community and asked them, you know, what was the most important thing in your recovery? And loud and clear, they said other people who've been there who understand my brain can show that recovery is not only possible, but really worth the hard fight. So did a lot of work around that, but I continued to see, frankly, with that program, people would come to us and have such transformative effects with the peer support. And yet like 90% of people who came to that program had no outpatient therapy and peer support alone can only do so much without, you know, quality clinical treatment You really needed to combine the two. And so that was, you know, one of the things that I saw and then going back to as well, just the transformation that I wanted to see in the field, I was very aware that it was going to be really hard to do that in the nonprofit sector with this lack, with this, you know, severe lack of funding. And so that was why we needed a new approach. So a way that I kind of think about it is I, you know, stepped uh, onto the board of Project Heal, and I'm still very actively involved with Project Heal to really fix the system, work with the payers, educate people on what proper treatment needed to look like, what they needed to cover and work on the system. And in the meantime, it takes a long time to get payer coverage. I think we've done a really quick and excellent job. And yet I'm still working every single day to partner with every Medicaid plan, TRICARE, Medicare. I want to make sure that this is covered by everybody. That's going to take me, you know, several years. And so in the meantime, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are falling through the cracks every day. And that's really where Project Heal comes in to really remove every barrier that there is to eating disorder treatment and really make sure that everybody who is, you know, ready for help gets the help that they they can afford through funding, through uh, partnerships with different treatment centers and providers across the country, and then really through continuing to understand what, what the different barriers to access are. We're, we're actually about to come out. We're just closing data collection for a study at Project Peel on kind of barriers to access within treatment that hopefully we'll be able to publish, uh, you know, early in 2023, really showcasing the myriad of factors that contribute to, you know, people to having barriers. And these are, you know, cultural factors. This is miseducation and information. This is, yeah, not having culturally competent providers, really quantifying that and learning from people's experience so that we can really push you know, policy forward. And I'm excited because we get to do a lot of great work together, you know, beyond we at Equip give uh, 12 free treatment grants per year to Project Heal individuals uh, so that they're able to participate in our program, uh, folks with insurance that we haven't gotten to or who are uninsured um, and, and doing some work more at the strategic level to think about how can we partner together and really educate folks on what these eating disorders are and, and break down barriers to people getting help. And can you talk a little bit more about Equip and what kinds of uh, care you offer and specifically the different types of treatments? Yeah, for sure. So I mentioned that, you know, family-based treatment is the leading and only evidence-based treatment for folks with eating disorders, uh, kids, adolescents, young adults. What I didn't say is that while 86% of folks see positive outcomes with FBT, it only results in full recovery for about 50% of adolescents. So clearly left some room to be desired that our best treatment only results in full recovery for 50% of adolescents. Um, and so what I am most proud of about Equip is that We've really taken learnings from 
tens of thousands of patients and families who've had success with FBT, but also who haven't had success with FBT. And we're really able to learn from them. What more did you need to make this successful for a hundred percent of people? And so We've, we kind of call our model FBT plus enhanced treatment. Maybe we're at the point now where we can call it just equipped treatment. Um, but again, it takes that cornerstone of family involvement, focus first on nutritional rehabilitation and weight restoration, and then adds in what people want to see. So traditional FBT is delivered once a week by a therapist. We heard loud and clear from families that they needed more support than that. And so we provide all families with a dedicated five-person care team. They get a therapist, a dietitian, uh, an MD, and then a peer mentor and a family mentor. All of these folks are employees of Equip, really important and different than a lot of other telehealth models, but we invest really tremendously in training and supervising our folks not only in the evidence-based treatment for eating disorders, but also the comorbidities that we talked about, uh, exposure and response prevention, dialectal behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, really making sure that we can get them to full, full recovery. And then we you know, provide it 100% virtually, which was always going to be what we were gonna do pre-pandemic, but I will say, two years into seeing patients and families, we really believe strongly that virtual is the right approach for eating disorders. And I talk a lot about kind of these two big reasons. The first being that you can't build a life worth living if you're not living life. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, certainly our existing residential treatment models uh, take people out of their lives. But even when I was, you know, 10 and going to five different providers a week, I didn't have time to be in theater, hang out with my friends, build up that life worth living. The other thing is that this treatment is hard. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. We talk a lot about the fact that treatments that feel good are different than treatments that work. This is a hard treatment and it works best when you can bring in your village. And when I was going through this, you know, my mom and dad both worked. It was rare that they could both attend sessions. Now we have families bringing, you know, four grown adults into the session and it really does contribute to less caregiver burden and better outcomes we know. So delivered fully virtually, the peer and family mentor, just to touch on that a little bit more, I uh, think this is really the secret sauce. Um, you know, we can have the best evidence-based treatments in the world, but if people don't engage in them, they're not going to work. And again, for a treatment that's really, really hard, it's so powerful to have somebody there who's like, I've been there. I understand how much this sucks and keep going. It's possible. It's worth it. I mean, when I was going through treatment, I'd never met anybody who had recovered and told me like, you don't really recover from this. This is going to stick around forever. It felt so hopeless. And, and frankly, like, why would I do all this hard work? It wasn't even possible. Right. I, so that having that peer who was frankly still like, we were both kind of struggling in it, but I, I think our, my relationship with Leanna was absolutely critical to my recovery process. And it's the same thing for the families. This is really hard for families, again, because a core part of an eating disorder is not knowing how sick you are and not wanting to get better. You're doing some of the hardest, you know, caregiving work that you've ever done. And your kid, by definition, hates you for doing it and doesn't want you to be doing it. It's really hard for families. And so to have someone who's like, I've been there, I get it. I know, I know how hard this is. And this is the thing that'll get your kid better. Trust the process, keep going is absolutely invaluable in keeping folks engaged in treatment. And then importantly, it's covered. Um, and so we've, you know, we work now with most major commercial payers across the US, United, Cigna, Aetna, Anthem, et cetera. Again, I'm working every day to expand coverage. And we've really 
educated them on the need to cover treatment for at least a year, because we know that that is what's going to get people to full recovery is that continuity of care. And really, once folks get to, you know, that period of full nutritional rehabilitation and weight restoration, which can take, you know, several months, they really need a good amount of time. I mean, the literature will say at least, you know, 12 to 18 months to stay there, let their brains heal, learn some of those other, you know, skills so that they can keep themselves in recovery and frankly, just have time to have their neural pathways rewired, right? Um, and so payers are covering a year or more of treatment right now, which is, you know, really invaluable. In terms of fundraising, when first started raising money, can you walk us through kind of the different stages from the private investors? And I know you just, I know you raised a series B, but kind of, can we start at the beginning? Yeah, sure. We, we were very new to this whole world of venture capital. And Aaron and I, my co-founder, decided that we are just going to be ourselves and be you know, transparent about what we know and what we don't know. I think we were also from the very beginning, very, very clear that we were looking for partners for whom this was a mission. This was more than an investment. This was personal and this was a mission. And we absolutely got that. We're so lucky with the folks that we have around the table. So um, F Prime Capital led our seed round really on this idea. Uh, as I mentioned, we you know had this meeting with payer partners in June of 2019. It was at that meeting that the chief medical officer of Optum said to us, if you build it, we will come. Uh, so we started, you know, working with him on, okay, here's the model. How do we figure out how to get paid for this while starting to learn about this world of venture capital and, and meet with funders and decide it was going to be a good fit. Started building uh, right as COVID hit. And so we did our first beta trial summer of 2020, started seeing patients um, in October of 2020, uh, you know, paying a uh, cash pay. Um, and then our insurance contracts turned on, United turned on as our first in March of 21. And we've gone on to sign, you know, 10 plus other payers. Uh, so Optum Ventures, which was one of, uh, they participated in the seed, but they led our series A. Um, they've been a phenomenal partner, obviously, you know, Optum United is the largest payer in the entire country. And so it really helped us to make sure that we could expand our, our business all across United. We actually are now serving uh, members in all 50 states. Uh, and United was the first to really say, oh, my God, you guys are doing such amazing work in four of our states. How quickly can you move to all 50? Um, and then most recently in our Series B, we were really fortunate to have a very competitive round and lots of interest. And we really went in saying we have great healthcare folks around the table, great, you know, technology folks. And now we're really focused on how do we change this cultural conversation? How do we get to the 80% of folks who haven't been diagnosed, who don't know they have eating disorders? How do we really get out there and educate people on what eating disorders are and what proper treatment looks like? And so we went with them. Um, the Chernin Group, uh, Peter Chernin ran Fox for a number of years, so really heavy in the media and entertainment space. They were the group that really incubated Headspace. And I don't know about you, but like 10 years ago, meditation was considered woo-woo. And now every everybody <laughs> believes yeah. in the power of meditation. It's so mainstream. And I think Chernin had a big responsibility for that. So we're really excited to work with them further. They helped us uh, bring on Katie Couric and Alex Morgan as investors um, and have been really phenomenal partners. How much of your experience was going in kind of explaining what eating disorders are and kind of what, did the, your experience as being like a woman change any of that? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think that a lot of people when we walked in, were like, this is an niche issue. This is something that only affects 
than white teenagers, girls, you know, and we had to do a lot of education around that. I think, look, there were certainly people, investment firms are made up of a lot of people. And so as long as we really cared that the partner was, you know, fully invested and fully committed and that the teams around them, they were open to learning and open to having their minds changed and seeing what an important issue uh, this really, this really was. And then, you know, in terms of being a woman in venture capital, I mean, it's disgusting that it's like single digit percentages of female founders. I think that absolutely needs to change. Uh, but I think that Aaron and I really, again, from the very beginning, went in and saying, we only know how to be ourselves. And so let's not try to put on airs and, you know, pretend we know things that we don't. Let's just be really honest about, you know, we know eating disorders and uh, we're looking for partners that can really help us to build a business. Um, and so really went in and we're curious, ask them questions and frankly, often got the response of like, you guys are, are really kind of one founders that are so rare in this deep industry expertise, which is kind of disappointing to hear actually, like you would think that if you're starting a company and something you would have that deep expertise at the forefront as well. But then also you guys are so rare in that you say, I don't know when you don't know, you ask us questions and for our opinion. And that was like, really? Like that's rare, but um, I think definitely served us well in the fundraise process. Mm -hmm. And so how would you maybe describe the entrepreneurial mindset and like some general competencies or different like technical or like soft skills? <laughs> oh, it's a really good question. I think, look, I think certainly this ability to hyper-focus on a goal, narrow out distractions, just like be gritty and persistent. I think running a nonprofit really gave me these skills from an early age of, you know, you ask 10 people to donate and maybe you get one, you get a lot of rejections, but you just got to keep going um, for that, you know, one out of 10 yeses and build your way there. It's this resilience, it's this grit, it's this fall down nine times, get up the 10th that I think is, is really important. And recovery also taught me that, right? My own personal journey through recovering uh, really taught me the importance of resilience and grittiness. And then I think, you know, the other thing that's been really important to me, I've always said that my greatest strength is you know, I don't need to be the smartest person in the room and I'm not, I know how to identify the smartest people that I need to have in the room and get them to like sit at a table together and converse. And that's absolutely been, you know, my experience at Equip. It's been amazing that I finally have the resources to really do that, to really get the experts in, you know, the clinical expertise, but then also business building and, you know, marketing and strategy and, and all of those folks around the table in a room together um, and really kind of, step back and, and let, let them execute. What kind of advice do you have for our listeners who are thinking about building a venture? Get a co-founder. <laughs> um, I think this is a, a hard journey, even in the best of times. It is an absolute roller coaster, sort of the ups and downs and really having someone who you know, you can weather that storm with, who can go through the emotional ups and downs with you is so incredibly important. And then also somebody who has a complementary skill set. I think um, if you are not, you know, if you're building a healthcare business and you're not a clinician, then I would absolutely recommend bringing in somebody with strong clinical expertise to make sure that quality is always the North Star. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for your time. I could keep talking to you forever, probably, but I've learned so much. Um, and I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Thank you all for listening. 
Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare, on Twitter at ThiaHC, and on our website at ThiaHC.org for more content and to join our vibrant community of young professionals, entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders in healthcare. Special thanks to our amazing audio editors, Ellie Park, Asim Jain, Nikita Gupta, and Katie Donahue. If you're enjoying our content, please consider supporting our podcast by donating at anchor.fm slash thea-hc slash support.